why do most of these new agency owners fail? Well, most of ours don't fail. Um, I'll say some fun not stats. Yours, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I took a, a small beta group of ten guys, and uh, the average guy made six thousand dollars their first month, uh, made nineteen thousand dollars their second month, made thirty-four thousand their third month. That's the average. Top twenty percent was already eighty thousand by month three. Hey, what's going on guys? Jason Capital here and I am at the uh, California temporary home of <laughs> one Mr. Alex Ramosi. Alex, how's it going? Good, good. Good, good. Uh, looking jacked as ever. Thanks. So, you know, congratulations on that. You know, switched from regular cook to diet. Changed my life. You know. <laughs> so uh, we did an interview like this about a year ago at your gym in uh, actually your garage gym in yeah. Texas, which was awesome. Um, feedback on it was insane. A lot of people want to hear part two a year later. So that's just what we're going to crack into. Um, so let's just, let's just get right into it. Uh, you were just continuing to what we were talking about. You were talking about um, selling stuff. And, selling stuff, and yes. Chat selling and phone selling. and Where were you yeah. going with that? Let's just start there. Oh, man. So over the last, I'd say, I mean, so we've, I've been selling stuff, you know, face-to-face. -face. I was selling for four years. We did 4,000 one-on-one closes. And so, like, I felt really good about sales in general. And then transitioning to selling online, I learned a lot of different things about the, just the difference in selling environment. And I went through tons of different courses around those types of sales. And I feel like I've, I've had like, you know when you like swallow tons of information, you have like a couple crystallizations that happen. Yeah. And um, one of them was what I'm just calling the seven components of a closed deal. And so, you know, the, everyone has lists and whatnot, but I think overall for a large period of time, my belief was that there's only three objections that can come up on a sale. One is I need decision maker, right? Like I can't make, I don't have the authority to make the decision. Mm -hmm. The second was um, I need to think about it, like a delay close. And then third was price, right? And I was like, you just need to understand those three and then you should be able to close it, right? And um, that's pretty much what I preached for three and a half, well, plus the years that I was selling the gym, six, seven years is what mm -hmm. I preached besides the main pitch, right? And um, I now feel like I've since learned a few more nuances to it that have helped me a lot out when selling clients. And so there's four that are required from the buyer and three that are required from the seller. And so that's what makes the seventh. Okay. And so the four from the buyer is something that I learned from the software world, which they call BANT, which you may be familiar with. I wasn't familiar with the term, but it's budget, authority, need, timing. Okay. And what's interesting about this is that every one of those, and so this came from IBM from the 1960s, they figured out, they did this huge quantitative analysis and they were like, they had so much business coming in, the phones are ringing off the hook and they're like, how do we just, just know exactly who's a qualified prospect to pass to a closer? And so they, in the, in the software world especially, they separate setters from closers. It's like a, it's a very specific world, SDRs and AEs typically is what they call them. Okay. Um, and so in order for a prospect to get qualified, that's like a job, is to qualify prospects and then pass them. And BANT is the requirement. And they know that if they do not have one of those four, they cannot close the deal. And so they must have those four to get passed on. And so in thinking about that, it really affected a lot about how I see friction in the application process of bringing prospects in. It's like I could, I could front load all of the, those four questions onto an application, mm -hmm. or I could just collect information and then, f and then put that on a qualification process with a first call. But at the end of the day, those four questions have to be met from a buyer to become somebody I can pitch, mm -hmm. right? On the flip side, what the buyer needs from us is that they, sorry, uh, is that they trust us for three different things. And this was what was different from what I used to believe. And so it's just, do they trust that this product is going to solve their needs in the way that they want them to be solved? It's mm -hmm. not just their needs, but just in, because I mean, you might want to lose weight, but you might not want to do surgery. Or you might want to lose weight, but you not, might not want to exercise. You might just want to diet. So it's like, will this solve my problem in the way that I want to have it mm -hmm. solved? Number one. Number two, do I trust me, the salesperson, because they might believe that but not trust you, which then influences whether they're gonna buy from you. Sure. And then the third is whether they trust the company, whether it's a scam or legit or it's gonna be here. And so what's interesting is that you can see the differences in those three pieces on the seller side in the selling environment. And so if you're selling in person, you automatically have the business because they walked in. Mm -hmm. you, you're halfway there with the salesman as long as you kind of like don't fuck it up, mm -hmm. right? And so you really just need to focus on selling the product. Right, because they already know that you're a legit business because they walked in. They know that you're not going anywhere because you're sitting at the desk. Mm -hmm. And so it's just like, is this thing going to help me? And so when we transitioned to phone sales and online sales, there was way less trust in those environments. And so we had to be specific about uh, creating that trust in both the marketing process, but also in the scripting we had around the sales. And so when someone, and the reason I started with the three obstacles that I thought were presented, is that I now have a different belief around those, which is just that one, every buyer has to qualify for those. But once they're on the call, any of those things that come up 
are simply symptoms or smoke screens of a lack of trust in me, lack of trust in the business, or lack of trust in that the, that the product's gonna solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And so now we see them as like, okay, if they say I need to think about it, it means they're not convinced in the product. And so they're gonna be like, totally understand where you're coming from. And we're gonna talk more about the product and come back around and then ask for the sale again. And so if they're like, you know what, uh, I, I need to think about it. Uh, sorry, no, I need to think about it. Like I have to talk to my spouse. They're gonna be like, I don't trust you, is what they wanna say, but they're not going to say sure. that. And so then we're gonna qualify ourselves, not in an arrogant way, but just be like, totally understand where you're coming from. I've worked with 300 different gym owners who have been in your exact same situation and were, and then we tell them their own story, right? Back to them. And like, and each of these guys was able to achieve on average this much. And so I totally understand where you're coming from, but I'm not asking you to make a lifetime commitment. I'm just asking you to make a, just like a soft yes. And so if we make you, and then we do a reasonable close, which is essentially asking a reasonable question uh, to precede the yes for a close. And so this was actually one of the biggest things that we've changed in our entire sales process was when I used to sell, and obviously if you're good at sales, you can sell even if you don't know what you're doing, mm -hmm. right? But I think as you try and repeat sales in process across teams and across companies, you have to be way more specific about it. And so um, with the reasonableness, I used to be like, doesn't that sound awesome? You ready to start tomorrow? You ready to start on Monday? You know, people would be like, yeah. You know? yeah. But when I have a team, I, I want to ask a simple question that's a lower bar. I don't want to say, does this sound amazing? Because people are like, no, it doesn't sound amazing. It sounds like a lot of work, <laughs> right? But I want to say something more reasonable like, so if this does everything that I say it does or half of what I say it does, do you think the price that, I'm, that we're asking for is reasonable? And they're going to be like, yeah, that sounds reasonable. We'll be like, awesome. Then let's get you started. And so we, we lower the bar of what we're asking them to say yes to. And as soon as they say yes, like, does that sound fair? Does that sound reasonable? Fair enough. Like all of those types of closes are reason closes that we then smooth right into the actual like, cool, then let's lock out the paperwork. And so it lowers the bar and it also, in my opinion, makes the close way more logical. Mm -hmm. And so you get a lot less backouts and hot, like hot buyers or yeah. hot sellers. Does that make sense? Yeah. So anyways, <clears throat> I, know, I just ran it about that, but that's no, some was, of the top of That was great. So how is, how is that, what's been the biggest difference then in terms of how you train your sales yeah. teams, your managers, in terms of like, if it's not time or stall uh, decision maker money, it, yeah. what's, what's the difference? Yeah. So um, the way that we do it is we collect info on our applications just to make sure that they're the right type of customer, right, avatar. So the application is more for the avatar than it is for the band, right? We use band on the, uh, the, the qualifier. So we have one person who qualifies all the leads. So people book on the calendars, but they get removed from the calendar if they're not qualified. So they have to qualify themselves based on, the application. Uh, based on messaging someone saying, hey, you need to have these things in order so, to take the call. So they fill out the application and then there's a messaging yeah. that bans them. Yes. They have to check the boxes. Exactly. Gotcha. And what's interesting is that when you say it via conversation, it's way less air, um, uh, offensive <laughs> yeah. than if it's on the application for some reason. And so we just pushed it one step back and it actually worked way People better. Are like, applications are yeah. dicks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Do I have $10,000? Yeah. Like, how dare you? Yeah, exactly. Computer asking me this question. Yeah, yeah, but like if someone's like, hey, by the way, this thing's uh, 10 grand, like, do you have that or should we just move on to somebody else? And they're like, no, I, I have that. Like, so oh, cool. after they fill out the application, how soon do they get a text? Media. Is yeah. there someone who's just waiting? Yeah, totally. And it just says, hey, we saw your application, I want to ask a couple questions yeah. before. Exactly. Or is it cool if we get and we can do now? phone call, we do text, we do whatever they, they prefer. We're Perfect. pretty flexible with that stuff. Okay. And then um, and then obviously we have the closing. But uh, the way that we've changed uh, operationally as a team is that um, I got really frustrated. So this may be for anybody who has a sales team that you know is an owner. My team was closing 12% of first calls. And that was, now we were high enough ticket that it was still fine, but I was still really frustrated with that. And so I hadn't been over sales in two or three years. I mean, like I hadn't directly managed sales. And so um, I kind of went back in and uh, I was like, we need to, you need daily reinforcement. You need to sharpen your ax every day if you're gonna chop wood for eight hours. And so we started training daily. Um, and so I split the tasks into the component parts of the skills that are required to be a good salesperson. And so, you know, half of sales, at least for a phone salesperson or a Zoom salesperson is, is talking and the other half is listening. And so for half of the, the 60 minutes in the morning, they spend reading the script out loud with the correct tonality, and they read it three times through um, without messing up. If they mess up, they go to the top of the game. Right? And they, they, Are they doing this with a partner? Yeah. Like role play? Yeah, exactly. When they actually meet up, they meet up together, they mute themselves, they go through that part, and then the second half, they go through, uh, they go through uh, a call from the day before from one of the guys, and they either pick about where they did well or what they didn't do well, where they missed something or a tonality drop and they didn't attack or there was a belief pattern that they didn't confront and then blew up in the, in the close, yeah. like things like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, in the talking piece, they'll also practice their loops. 
And so we have three loops that we practice. One is about trusting me, one is about trusting the product, and the other about trusting the company. And so based on the ops we have, we always agree with them, be like, totally understand where you're coming from. And then we ignore it and loop all the way back around and ask again, right? And so it's really, you can, in theory, you could have infinite loops, but you're usually constrained by time. So usually we can get three or four loops in. And that is what allows us to now, after we implemented this process in this um, daily cadence for training, uh, like last week was 44% of first calls, wow. right? Yeah. yeah, simply by including, improving the skill, right? And so what anybody who's in sales will understand that it's not the words. The words are 10% of it. Like I could give you Chris Rock's entire routine and you could read it and it would probably bomb. Yes. It's all about the delivery, sure. right? And so um, getting them to practice the proper tonality at the right points, where do I, where do I lower my voice so you think this is more important, mm -hmm. right? And where do I, where I be like, absolutely, totally understand. Where, where am I going to say something, an obvious statement to embed a belief of something that's really positive, but I'm going to say it as though it's obvious and a preconceived like notion that you should Matter obviously know. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so where, where am I going to use these different tonalities at different parts of the script so that I can be more persuasive? Yeah. And so um, we layered those pieces in to our own scripting and how we drilled. And then this is just a practice. So every morning the sales team gets up. I can show you my phone. I have up, 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 up at four o'clock and five o'clock in the morning when they all wake up together and they practice first thing before they you know, think about their wives, before they think about their kids, they practice for an hour. Yeah. And I think part of that's also setting the intention for the day of like, I'm a closer. I'm here, to, I'm here to close. I'm here to make sales. And I'm not here to take orders. I'm here to order people. <laughs> you know, um, And so by doing that, that's what's created a culture of high performance. And so when we get a new sales guy who comes on, if they're in that lines then, like they will not, if they're like, you guys wake up at four? It's like, yeah. Matter of fact. Yeah. yeah. Like you don't, um, you're going to practice. It's just like you're practicing with us and if you're not going to, then there's really no point in you being here. Yeah. Because there's no way you're going to beat us. Yeah. Because it's like Kobe, like they're doing an hour every day of deliberate practice, six days a week. Our guys train six, they only have to do five. They still meet on Saturday mornings and train. Yeah. And that's just the culture. And that's, that's the, that's the <clears throat> special sauce that gets the extra oomph that happens mm -hmm. that um, is harder to replicate. But the training process itself can be replicated by anyone. Yeah. And we'll typically, you know, 2x your sales just from that one. Three and a half. Yeah, that was, that was process plus culture. Yeah. You know. So yeah. That's awesome. It's always also. Yeah. Were you, were they doing training like that before? No. They weren't. There was, no. What, what did the training look like before? Before it was probably standard. It was two weeks of uh, they'd go through, you know, training the course. They would role play, you know, with with some of the sales guys uh, that were established, and they would do ride-alongs uh, for a little bit. And they'd listen to usually about twenty different sales calls recordings. And then at that point, we put them on. Yes. And then, yeah, in seven days, if they're not closing, then you'll find out. Right? They're not. They reveal. Yeah. Got it. Exactly. So, have you found a way to transfer some of this culture and training cadences into your training your chat? Everything. Yes. So what are they doing? Yeah. And so what are the component parts of somebody who does chat? They have to read and they have to be able to type. Yeah. And so what they do is we, our guys train on typing speed every morning because I can increase their throughput typically by double. So if I can get you to do twice as many chats a day, you can sell twice as many people per day. Yep. Right. Yep. And so we train on, on, on typing. And so they actually go through and, and the nice thing is there's tons of really established, well, typing training. oh yeah, tons and they're free. Um, but the one that we have is super cheap and I can see everyone's and I they can I see their logs I can see their speed improve. That's I can great. see what time they're logging all that stuff Yeah, and then on the flip side is reading comprehension and there's tons of programs online to help people read and comprehend uh, Information faster and so if I can improve and what I like about this as a business owner is that I feel like I'm actually like really Improving and investing in our employees because anybody who can read and type faster is a more valuable human. Yes Fundamentally totally. right and to the same degree, somebody who can listen and detect language patterns and tonality shifts will be a more persuasive individual which will help them in their life overall. Totally. And so um, I'm trying to break down all of the departments that we have into the component skills that are required and create daily trainings for each of them. Right now I'm done three departments, um, but we're just continuing to move down because of the huge increase in throughput that we had for the sales team. I was like, and it's, it's more prevalent for repeated action departments. So departments that like customer service would be a department that would do, typically they, you know, they, they confront the same problems every day. And so it's like, this is repeated action. What are the skills that are required? How can we break them into component parts? And then how can we practice them? Um, and then what is the you know, primary KPI for that department so that they can always see that that thing's moving in the right direction? Is it a uh, time of resolution? If it's, a, if it's, a, if it's a, a customer service rep, if it's chat, it's you know, how quickly can we get someone scheduled? Uh, if it's a sales person, what's their, their percentage of first calls closed? Whatever those you know, stats are. Yeah, so in the, um, the typing training, which is training? The typing training? Yeah. The agents. Is that 
does it are you having to just type whatever the software does for practices or yeah okay no it's just whatever the they might have them type whatever it is gotcha yeah okay it's not related to the actual script no okay no 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 um it's actually yeah it's it's very straightforward because we're not we're not selling anything uh we're just we're doing six inch putts we're just getting gotcha. people over the edge where they just people just need to be followed up with and so it takes way less ingenuity and way more uh just effort yeah, you know what I mean. There's no like, there's S- not a short. S- it's S- just, yeah, yeah, it's just effort. Yeah. There's not, there's not nearly as much uh, nuance. There is. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to, to anybody on my team who's listening. Like, it's not like it's it's, it's easy, but compared to somebody who's closing, mm-hmm. there's way more nuance than it. Sure. Okay. Um. So I want to shift gears real quick, cool. and uh, I want to talk about a little bit about onboarding and choreography. Uh, <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> you see, I got a checklist here. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I'm gonna get what I want for it. Right? Um. So obviously in, in Gym Launch, you guys have helped an enormous amount of gyms in a very short amount of time, like transform lives and yeah. children and family, like really made an impact with that. And um, you were able to, to extract results from people who previous people that paid could not extract those results from. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think a big part of it is, I think you've said to me that in the past where you like force success out of people where they don't Try. have a choice, right? Yeah. So can you just walk me through, like how did it look at the very beginning, the onboarding, and then what were the big distinctions or changes you guys made? So, for success out of people and get some yeah. success stories. So um, I think there's a lot of different components, but I'll try and break down the, the fewest ones. So big, the first one is price. Like price alone will get, the more someone pays, the more they'll pay attention, the more invested they are, the more invested they'll be. Mm-hmm. And so simply charging more for your services will automatically get you A, higher quality customers who are more likely to implement, and B, they're more likely to implement because of their investment. So it's kind of both sides of it. It's like you have a higher quality individual and you have a, higher, a more higher, investment from that individual. Mm-hmm. So both of those things together can create uh, an environment that's more likely for someone to succeed. So that's like piece number one, very f- straightforward. Number two is the mousetrap that we're trying to build and trying to teach them. And so that's, you know, if I had a program, like it'd be so easy for me to sell like how to make money online, for example. But I would know that if I just wanted to make it as a general theory course, then I would know that automatically, you know, one out of 20 would be able to have all of the requisite skills and personality and beliefs to accomplish it. And so I can't do that or I can't sleep with that. I wanna try and figure out ways that I can get 80 or 90% of people to be successful. And so what that means is I sacrifice sometimes teaching people how to have a $100 million business so that I can teach everyone how to have a $1 million business. Mm -hmm. And I've made that decision and Elon Musk actually was quoted about this. He's like, I'd rather, I could either um, help a a small amount of people a lot or help a lot of people a little. He's like, I'd rather help a lot of people a little bit. And so that's kind of where I think about this is like rather than have 10 people who I take to 100 million, I'd rather have, you know, a thousand people I take to 1 million, Mm -hmm. even though it's the same total overall, I feel like that makes far more impact. Mm -hmm. And so um, when we build the mousetraps themselves, we're we're looking for, we always base on averages and medians. It's not like, do we have testimonials? I have testimonials from every single test we ever run, but that doesn't mean it's effective because one guy is a stud and can close $5,000 sales over the phone doesn't mean everyone is. Mm-hmm. And so when we're thinking about the offers, the price points, the downsells, the upsells, the choreography for their clients to go through their mousetrap, mm-hmm. I think and test each of those pieces. And so, for example, the online gym model that we recently had to pivot all of our gyms over to, there's, there's four component parts to the business and then each of those parts has had at least five different iterations that we've tested. And so if you're looking at that, you know, you've got 20 different tests that we had to run uh, with small five to 10 gym beta groups. And then we'd measure the results and see if it was above or below the, the average prior. And if it was above, we implemented it. And if it was below, then we just disregarded it. And so that came with the offers that came with the price point for the first sale that came with the price point and the selling process for the second sale and the same for the third sale, uh, walking them through that. And so that's again, so first is the price. Second is the mousetrap that they're actually implementing. Is it built for mass success or is it built for individual high achievers, which right. is a big difference. Right. And then third um, is focusing on, because you talked about onboarding, is focusing on activation instead of churn. And so I got this again from the software world, which is why software has been really good for me as an entrepreneur. I've learned a lot. Um, but the software world is all about activation and not churn. Churn is a lagging indicator. It's like you're looking at your churn and trying to make it go down. It's really difficult to do that because it takes usually two or three months for any thing that you do to show an effect, which means that if you're actually testing something uh, in theory, you only have four tests a year you can run. Because mm-hmm. if it takes three months to actually test and see if it improved, then you can only do one implementation, wait three months, one implementation, wait three months. Yeah. And so you, if you're in a competitive space, you can't only change four things a year. And so it's way easier to look for a leading indicator like activation uh, to figure out or reverse engineer a client that's going to stay. 
And so the process of looking through that is what are our best clients and taking all of those, cutting everyone else out and seeing, and then basically turning back the clock and seeing what are the, what are the attributes of these clients, right? And that affects the application questions mm-hmm. uh, that I'm screening for them specifically. Mm-hmm. And then um, from there, what are their, what are their other component parts? Did they have employees? How many of them they had? Did they have multiple locations? What type of gyms were they? Uh, what geographic locations were they in? All of those things are going to factor into, you know, whether someone was successful or not. And so if we can get the client avatar right, and then we also know that they attended each of their calls on time, and we know that they launched within their first seven days, and we know that they made their first $2,000 sale within the first 14 days, then we're going to try and reverse that and then try and incentivize those actions. So um, either through carrot or stick. So if someone signs on with us and we say, cool, you have four onboarding calls that you have to attend. And if you don't, we're going to bill you $500 for every call you miss. Then someone's really, really motivated to make sure they attend those sure. calls. And so then I can reverse engineer the activation sequences that someone... Incentivize the activation points. Right, exactly. Is that what you did? Did you actually do the $500? So we, uh, we are big on penalty fees in general. Um, but yeah, they know that they have other things that they don't get access to. We also hold like information uh, hostage. Uh, it's another way of doing it that's not as aggressive. Um, right. So it's like you don't get access to the information until so you attend these things. And so then it's like things like that that that's are awesome. easier to, yeah. to implement um, to get people to stick. But we use the penalties in the fitness business. Yeah. So for those clients, they have three calls they have to attend. Their supplement sale, the continuity sale, and the second continuity sale. And so yeah, once they true. sold a trial, they're sold on the fact that they have to go to these things or they will get billed. And so with that, then we make sure that they show up for the sales appointments, which we know are going to be conversion. So yeah. on the, on the uh, Ascension sale, Whatever it is, whether it's for fitness business, your businesses, yeah. or whatever, that call also has an incentive around it that they have to attend. Yeah, for the fitness businesses, for ours, it's, it's a different incentive. It's just more like you're not going to get the thing. Right. And what is what is the framing on that call? I don't think we have too much of a frame. It's like this is just how we do like, it. Like a checking call. Yeah. This is you mean for so because we're a performance business, which is kind of interesting. Um, we there are there's only one way for us to make. A customer more valuable for us, which is just get them to basically make more money. <laughs> and so the way to do that is we have to increase their availability, so to increase the amount of times they can take sales calls, increase their ad spend so we can get them more people in the door, mm-hmm. um, and then ultimately increase their close ratio, which is kind of indirect to whether they're going to be successful and stay, right? And so um, all of the efforts that we have are trying to not upsell, but try and get people to make, like we try to get you to make more money so that we can make more money, right? Um, and basically increasing the amount of throughput that we can drive through their facility, whether it be online or in person, um, so that they can make more money in a certain way. How big of a role do you think um, reverse engineering those activation points and then aligning incentives so they happen in the way that you want plays on how many people ascend to the second thing and the third thing? Uh, based on the research, Layla quoted this, so it's not me. Um, most people make the decision whether they want to stay with your company between the sale and the first call that they have. So like not even when they've tried your product, just through their experience between when they were sold and what their first real touch point is with the company, how they've been treated during that period of time, they've made their decision of whether or not they want to stay with you. Gotcha. And then they'll stay consistent. Yeah. And so either you're playing catch up, right? Yep. And you're screwed and you're going uphill or you already have some trust and some goodwill on your side that you can continue to bank on. What are, your, what are some of your favorite things to do between sale and first call? Um, we send handwritten cards. We send um, stuffed animals. Uh, we make sure that everything is always documented. Um, everything that's verbal is also documented in writing. So it's like, I'm going to tell you right now what's going to happen next. You're also going to get an email after this call that says everything that I'm saying right now. If you have questions, reference the email. Yep. You're also going to get a recording of this call that's also going to be sent in the email. So if you need to watch this again or show it to your team, yep. right? And so the next call is on Tuesday. That's the third. That's in three days from now, right? And so on there, you're going to need these three things. And between now and then, if you don't give me those three things, I can't give you access to this thing. Cool. Right. So please send me back those things or I won't be able to do this call with you. You know what I mean? And so then yeah. that's, it's really being, it's really just clarity. It's just yeah. communication. It's, it's conviction and it's clarity. Yeah. It also makes me feel safe. Yeah. Right. Because people just want to know what happens anxiety next. About after, I don't remember any of that shit now. You yeah. got it. I can trust you. Yeah. I think a lot of people, I, I think about the old Dan Kenny quote about with their umbilical cord looking to plug in. And um, I think a lot of people are just looking to abdicate everything. And if they meet someone who's just going to, I'll do everything for you and you just hear it, that kind of thing. I think it makes an enormous difference. Um, Okay, so uh, I have a couple questions for my team. Let me go to these right now. Uh, they looked at I had them slack me. I was like, because just so you got Zach and Wally specifically, I know that you guys love Alex and his podcast. So, um, so Zach had a question. You mentioned in a podcast at some point. Um, but I hate when I'm being interviewed. Someone's like, you once said this. Um, 
but you said in a podcast, you said about uh, a focus coach and attention yeah. coach. Were, what, is, there, is that a real thing? What, what was yeah, that? It was a real thing. Um, yeah. So basically, I spent 90 minutes every day talking to the same coach, and he would just be like, what's on your mind? And so it basically would just clear things, it would just clear items. And so if it was like, this is something I'm concerned about, or this thing with my mom came up, or it's just like, I had so much, you know, he called them confusions, but basically things that were just draining my attention. Mm -hmm. And so clearing those things is really just a function of understanding what they are. And so a lot of times we have these um, misunderstoods, these things that have happened in our past that we don't understand them. And so they block up, they hold attention basically. Mm -hmm. And then once you can release those, you get the attention back. Mm -hmm. And so there's just a deliberate process of thinking like kind of like auditing yourself and thinking like, okay, what are the things that are on my mind right now? What are the things that are taking my attention? And then what are those things can I clear, right? What, 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 what loops that are open mm -hmm. can I close? Yeah. Um, and that can be relationships with friends. It can be relationships with, you know, uh, coworkers. It can be something someone said. It can be something that you felt as a response to something you saw. Sure. It can be any of those things. Um, but one of the biggest ones is understanding what it is about it that bothers you. And then many times it's because you don't even understand what it is. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's really just doing that work and diving into it until you kind of like shed light on it and you're like, okay, now I understand this. It no longer bothers me. I have my attention back. Yeah. And so that was just a deliberate process that I ran through for, for nine months. Every day? Every day. Five days a week. Yeah, for 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, when was this? This was 2017. That's when you were launching... Yeah, yeah, yeah. a lot of things happened during that period of time. So I was just like, I was just all in on everything. You know what I mean? Where yeah. it's just like, yeah. I went all in on that. I stopped <laughs> drinking. I, you know, married Layla. I, you know, like, yeah. I was just like, this is where I'm going. You yeah. know what I mean? And so it was just like, people were like, do you think that's the one thing? I think everything was the one thing. Like, I think it was, what was the one thing that changed? No idea. Um, but it was just, I was really tired of what I was doing and really needed a different way of living. And so that's what I did. And since that ended, do you carry out that kind of practice with yourself? Or you so Layla and I will talk more uh, with each other of like, what's taking your attention? You know what I mean? That's usually the phrase that we'll use. Um, but I think that the, the more frequently you practice it, the more, the, the faster you are at detecting those things mm -hmm. and you stay clear, if that makes sense. Totally Rather makes sense. than... Yeah. Cause like you'll feel weighted and you're like, what's on, like what's going on. But if you don't know how to detect that, the world just feels heavy yeah. and it's just like everything feels overwhelming yeah. when it's really not even a really huge task. Right. And the, the easiest way I can describe that from a mental standpoint is if you've ever like had a math problem that you were looking at and you're like, I can't solve this thing. And then you go to sleep and you wake up and you're like, why was I struggling with this? This is not hard. Or you might've had a work thing, whatever. That's the easiest description of what it feels like to get attention back. Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And so all of a sudden these problems that used to be complex or, or really difficult to understand seem really easy to see the component parts and be like, I understand each of these pieces. Yeah. But if you don't have the horsepower because you're so distracted from all these other things in your life, you become really impotent as a person. Mm -hmm. um, you just have very low capacity as an individual and you can't accomplish much. Even if, even if you have a Ferrari engine, um, it's being weighted down with all this other stuff that it's, you know, it's running the AC, it's running the, you know, whatever the, you know, analogy. Yeah, you four fat people in the back seat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. How did you find that coach? Um, how did I find that coach? I was recommended to him by an ex-business partner. Gotcha. It's like, hey, you suck at paying attention. You yeah. <laughs> it's actually more or less what it was. He was just like, you are way too distracted. Were you, were you, from your own assessment, do you feel like you were like a very different person before that process? Totally. You were? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's the same person, but just, um, you have your attention back. scattered. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Scattered and overwhelmed. Would you say most people are scattered today? Totally. Yeah. Most people walk around just unsure and consistently reactive. Mm -hmm. They're just reactive. They just have emotions and they just feel them and they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Um, rather than being able to like see them, interpret them, process them and be like, okay. You know, and it just takes time. And it's, I think it's just a deliberate practice. Sure. It's like a muscle. You're doing, yeah, you're, exactly. you're doing muscles, Alex. Yeah. Like, I'm all about the gains. It's the thing, man. Brain gains. Next question. He said, how do you, um, what do you like to do to train sales managers and support them best? So we're actually in an interesting spot right now in our company. We have the best sales team we've ever had. And I've had probably six high performance teams that I've run myself over the last, you know, seven years. And the team that we have now is the best team. And I, if the last team I had, I wouldn't have said that was the best team if it had been that moment. It wasn't. Um, I knew we had some issues. Um, but this team uh, is amazing because of the culture. 
And so currently I have one manager, he's a director, who runs both marketing and sales, which is I've never done before. But there's some really cool advantages to that because he owns acquisition. And so typically when you have marketing and sales, sales complains that the lead quality isn't high enough or there's not enough of them. And marketing says sales can't close anything. And so it's just this constant battle. But when you have one guy who's responsible, then he's looking at both sides of the equation and trying to calibrate it so that we can just get the most money. Right. right? And so um, holding one person accountable to that has been really huge for me. Beyond that, we have basically what I would consider a sales lead. So it's kind of like the spirit leader of the sales team. And he's the one who really enforces the daily training. But, but if the culture is right, the whole team is bought in, which our current team is. And so we now just hired a new person this, uh, last week who just started. And he's diving heads first. And they're just like, this is how we roll. Like, either run with us or don't. But, like, we're fucking going. Yeah. And so um, in terms of... Uh, the, the processes, one is just installing the daily training. Second is just having a weekly cadence with them to understand what the what's coming up. Um, and we do that with marketing and sales together. Because, together. right, awesome. exactly. Because if we're detecting, because the sales should be the front line to give feedback to marketing. And if they're both on the same team, then it's not this animosity. It's more like, hey guys, we're getting a lot of personal trainers on the phone and they're not qualified. Mm -hmm. They're like, okay, let's see if we can adjust the targeting or maybe we can adjust the application or adjust the headlines mm -hmm. to try and address that. Um, and so it just, it just works, it works both ways and it works a lot better. Okay. I don't know if that was the answer you were looking for. No, I mean, what is the, what's the cadence, I guess, of communications between you and the sales manager? Oh, once a week. Just yeah, once a week. once a week. Yeah, but once a week with the team and once, and once a week one-on-one. -on -one. And what do you, when you talk to your manager, like, what's your mindset? What are you looking for? Um, This one guy manages both marketing and sales. And so it really depends on what, if I'm being honest with you, is depends on what the what the bottleneck is. So if the bottleneck right now is marketing, then we're gonna be talking about messaging hooks and you know what what are the main directions we need to take for the, the ads that are coming out. If it's if the if the the bottleneck is on sales, then it's gonna be how do we onboard more salespeople, how do we drill them, where do we get some more people? So it's really it just depends on what is the problem that we're dealing with. Yeah. And that's what we address. So something I've I've personally struggled with a little bit is trying to figure out do I solve the problem or do I try and empower the person and let them solve it? What do you what's your yeah, approach on that? Really interesting. So there are I think four or five, I can't remember what it is, um, big beliefs that I've had broken uh, that I feel like I routinely break for people who are trying to get to eight figures or multiple eight figures. And so this is an inverse, this is an unrelated answer to your question in a roundabout way. One of them is to spend more on marketing, period. Like when we look at our, this might be crazy for you. So I looked at our total lifetime spent on marketing and our total uh, dollars made, and we have a 35 to one return on our ad spend lifetime. So we spent $2.6 million and we've done $91, $92 million in sales off two and a half million dollars of ad spend. Mm. And I should just spend more money. That's what I should do. You look at that and you go, I should have spent more than two Right, days. yeah, of course. But when I talk to people who are smaller in their businesses, they're afraid to spend money. And so sometimes you just, it's just a belief. It's like, dude, you're spending 500 a day, spend 5,000 a day. Like, what's the point? Like, what's the, what's the bottleneck here? Mm -hmm. And so it's getting people to make that first step is one of them. The second one is increasing their price, right? You need to charge more, otherwise there's no profit, and I go through lots of explanations about that. The third one, because I'm gonna get to the, the why I'm talking about this, um, is paying for talent. Um, and understanding that the, the best people need to get paid like the best people. And so thinkers need to pay to be paid much more than you expect, and doers need to be get paid less. And so there's actually more of a, a dichotomy between those two things, mm -hmm. because a thinker should be able to make the decision for you and make the right call. And in, in theory, you should be able to make a better call than you. And so I don't know if you've ever like, gone to a company and met an employee and been like, man, this employee's freaking awesome. Like, man, if I had this person on my team mm -hmm. and the goal for us is to, how can we create that experience for every one of our employees? Right. Um, and typically high performers are not, you know, and no offense to anybody on my team, but people who, you know, are not at 50 or 60 or 70,000 a year. Like a lot of times high performers are 150, 250, 250 plus bonuses. Like that type of person has confidence, knows how to make decisions, has a track record and they're not coming for peanuts. Mm -hmm. And I think the mistake that I've made um, was that I tried to turn a Camry into a Cadillac. You know what I mean? It's trying to, trying to push someone and empower someone who does not have the skills or does not have the bandwidth or doesn't have the attention because of other shit that they're dealing with in their lives to actually make good decisions. Mm -hmm. And so the delegation is one piece of it, but it's delegating to a team member that's capable. If the person isn't capable, you shouldn't delegate it because they'll make a horrible decision. 
but it's finding the right people and then building superstar teams. And I know that sounds really trite, but like until I internalized that and made that like my truth, then like the world opens up because, you know, I don't do a tremendous amount in my company because the people that run those departments are better at it than mm -hmm. I am. Like Suzanne is our CFO and she's way better at finance than I am. Like Megan knows all the, 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 the HR stuff, Jessica knows all the HR stuff. And like just, just all the people in our company just know their divisions way better than I do. I just need to make sure the strategy's right and that like the numbers make sense. But, mm -hmm. um, but it took time. Like we replaced, so I, I went through this experience. I had 11 directors. I have now replaced all 11 over the last 18 months with new directors that are at that next level. Yeah. Because directors we had were me putting, um, this is no, this is not a direct insult or anything like that to my former directors, but it was, it was putting lipstick on a pig. It was trying to put, you know, rockets on, on a, on a, on a two-seater. It didn't, it didn't make sense. It was, they were at their point of uh, incompetence mm -hmm. and they had gotten us to here, but they weren't going to get us to the next level. Yeah. And so that's the mistake that I make and that I see a lot of entrepreneurs make is they're not willing to pay for talent, even though I have tons of margin in their business. Um, and so hopefully that wraps around yeah. the answer. So, so I mean, basically, if you're paying someone 150, 250 plus bonuses or something, you expect them to be a Cadillac, to be a Ferrari, mm -hmm. and to solve the fucking problem. Right. Yeah. And you should have a track. So one of my, uh, I made this podcast, it was Lessons from 2019. It's like 30 minutes long of literally every lesson that I learned of all my fuck ups. And one of them was that hire for, uh, hire for track record, not potential. And so I used to hire for culture fit and potential. I'm like, this guy could be amazing. It's like, now I don't give a shit. It's like, fuck potential. Mm -hmm. Like, what have you done? Like, I don't want to know someone who knows how to run an Olympic gold. I want somebody who already has the medal. Yeah. Because there's a lot of things you learn along the way that you don't know that you're going to learn. Right. And so I want somebody, like, I feel like I'm buying someone's experience at a discount compared to the cost of the mistakes I would make if I didn't have them. Mm -hmm. And so it's worth paying a premium to pay down my ignorance tax on what I don't know that's going to happen. That they should know. Yeah. Do you uh, do you do thinking time? No. So you mentioned ignorance tax. No, I should, but I. But you. So I think all the time, and at the same it's, time, it's, like, here's the thing. Like of all the entrepreneurs that I know, yeah. you are probably the most self-aware. Um, <laughs> well, you're you're very aware of strengths and weaknesses, and yeah. you're open with admitting both. Yeah. Um, whereas most entrepreneurs, it takes them like three months to admit a mistake, and you yeah. admit one in three days, and you pivot immediately. What do you think plays into that self-awareness? Uh, I don't know. Crippling insecurity, probably. That's the secret. Yeah. <laughs> well, there's, uh, uh, I saw this study that Sam Ovens posted, um, that I, it's basically had the, there's three components of hyper successful people. Um, one is, uh, sense of superiority, that they're better than everyone. Sure. The other is, um, incredible insecurity, feeling that they're never going to be good enough. And then self impulse control. That's it. That makes a lot of sense. And, it's, and I think it's the more maxed out all of those are, the more you feel like you're better than everyone, the more you feel like you'll never be good enough, and the harder you can control your impulses. Yeah. Those three things are what amplify the individual, and it's not, and none of those things are IQ. You know what I mean? Sure. But, um, so why, you know, why do I admit that? It's just like, I think it's just whatever is necessary for, for winning. But when you say I sit and I think a lot, like, what does that look like? So, you know, Layla and I walk, um, probably three times a day. And so I'm a, I'm a talking thinker. And so for me that, that manifests, I don't do a lot of solo thinking time. I do a lot of talking out loud time. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, I wonder if we, and that's like, you know what I mean? And then I start bouncing for a while. And sometimes I feel bad because my like teammates or my employees will be like, I feel like you just talked at me for 30 minutes. And I'm like, yes, but I feel like we made progress. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's, that's actually what thinking looks like for me is I'll have kind of one-off conversations about like something I'm like, I need to, I need to I put some mass to this. Yeah, yeah. I need to, I need to bounce this off of you. Um, and that's usually how a lot of the, the big thoughts get moved forward in the company. Gotcha. But as we've evolved as a company, um, one of the big things that I've like at the at my current entrepreneurial place, um, the big three for making decisions has been probably the big, I think I might've shared it with you. Um, it was from Keith Hanningham's, uh, the road less stupid, yeah. really good book. Uh, it's what's my upside of making this call? Cause usually as entrepreneurs, we're weighing out decisions, costs and benefits, right? Should I make this, should I change this price? Should I, whatever, we make a million decisions like this. What's my upside? What's my downside? And the third one, let me assume the downside and can I live with it? Mm -hmm. And I think that for a really long time, I just looked at upside downside and just said, well, if I have a, so Jeff Bezos was, this is one of my favorite quotes was, um, if you have a 10% chance of getting a hundred times payout, you should take that bet every time, knowing that nine out of times you'll be wrong. 
but what if the minimum bet at the casino is uh, $10 and you have 30 bucks? Should you still take the bet? Hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. And you getting down to zero means that it's going to take you X amount of time to, to bounce back. And mm -hmm. I feel like that's a far more uh, nuanced question. And I think that that's far more the reality. And so I read that first quote and I made a lot of decisions in the first two or three years of business that if I could make them again, no, I wouldn't have made. Because whenever you make any change, there's always you always incur the cost of change. Mm -hmm. And so I think I, I changed a lot of things in my company from happy to glad. Um, so it's like you change the word from happy in a paragraph to glad, and it's the same thing. Yep. And so there was really no substantive change that happened, but we did still incur the cost of change. Yep. And so I got the cost of change, but I didn't get the benefit. Yep. And so, and sometimes just things being new and exciting gives you minor pops, then it goes back to maintenance, right? And so I would be far more sparing and deliberate with the choices that I would make, and I feel like I am now, in terms of changing direction uh, with the company. I mean, I still need to work on it. But um, that's where my kind of deliberate practice that I'm working on for me as an entrepreneur right now is doing less and doing more yep. at the same time. Yep. So making fewer changes and doing more repeating successful actions. Yep. Like, okay, well, if we're spending this much, spend more. If we have three sales guys, get six. If we have, you know what I mean? It's yeah. just expanding instead of changing. Yeah. And I think one of the mistakes that a lot of earlier entrepreneurs, myself included, make is that we want to put jetpacks on a two-seater and figure out how to get more out of this thing rather than just admitting the fact that you just need a bigger fucking car. Yeah. Right. And that's it. Like you still need to drive the same way. You just need a bigger car. <laughs> yeah. And so it just means sometimes you just have to get more sales guys. You just have to spend more money. You don't need to change your business model to make more money. You just need to do more of what you already doing. Yeah. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of, uh, I've heard Warren Buffett's analogy about the punch card in investments. Yes. The 20, it's yes. 20 decisions. Yes. Yeah. It's um, totally like that. Yeah. It's totally like that, but with your business to, like strategy. Yeah. Especially as entrepreneurs, I mean, you're talking about impulse control. We're all with this idea, totally. this idea, but it, it drives your team crazy and there's yeah, the cost of complexity and change, which is guaranteed, but the reward of the change is not guaranteed. Right. Yeah. And is the, is the yeah. cost worth the reward, right? Right. Because the cost is assumed. And then you have the real cost, which there's cost of chain is assumed. And then you have the true downside, which is like, well, what if it goes down? Can I live with that? Because um, I've definitely made some bets where I'm like, the downside was pretty high. And if I had thought, this is going to happen, can I live with that? I would not have said yes. And it's nice thing is that you can apply it anywhere. So like, mm -hmm. I'll give you a really real world example. It's stupid, but it's small. So Layla and I were working out at a, on a vacation and she brought her TRX thing. It was a hotel gym. And so they actually had a TRX hook and I was like, oh, that's convenient. So I hooked it there. It was kind of a pain in the ass. I had to like get on, I had to like put stools together because all the way up and I hooked it. And right as we were leaving, you know, after working out, I was like, uh, do I want to take this with me or not? Like, could I, cause like no one was at the gym. Like it was totally one of those, like no one's ever going to see it. Yeah. And so I'm looking at this thing, like it's going to be a pain in the ass to get that back up, get, get that down and then do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so I was like, well, what's the upside? The upside is that I save time and effort from doing that. My downside is someone steals it and I can't use it for the rest of the workout and someone stole it. Can I live with the downside? No. Okay. Then I have to go get it. It's just like, but like that was like literally applying. Yeah. And I don't know if I necessarily, if I didn't have that, I probably would have been like, fuck okay. it, I'll leave it. Yeah. <laughs> That's so true. Um, yeah. But sometimes applying those, it was like, I can't live with the downside. I'll be really annoyed with that. And the downside is not worth it. And so it wasn't worth the upside. And so it's just applying that framework for a lot of decisions. And so when you're making, uh, when you are making a choice that this is a change, this is something we're going to implement here, yeah. uh, a new test, whatever it might be. Uh, one thing I've struggled with is I'm like, oh, this is good. We're, this is, let's focus on this. And, and, yeah. and uh, this is the bottleneck and we'll raise this up is, I implement it with team leaders and things like that. And then I get sucked into the whirlwind of everything else that goes on in the business. And I find myself forgetting to push it through or whatever. Yeah. Uh, how do you avoid like the whirlwind and, and I think stay it's, focused on one I think it's a function of how good the people are, really. It's kind of like that, that third belief of just like, if you had, like if I say, hey, Suzanne, I need you to implement this new thing with finance. I have no idea even how to do it. So I won't even be helpful. Right, I think where entrepreneurs struggle the most is where they have expertise. So it's harder for me to stay out of marketing than it is for me to stay out of finance. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think layers of layers and degrees of separation is the only thing that I've seen. And um, be honest, I struggle with it, especially with marketing, because it's kind of like what I'm what I feel like I'm good at. Um, and so the layers that have to be there is like Layla is a layer of protection against me because she. And the thing is, is that Layla is amazing because she's she's an expert at operations and leadership and culture, but she's not a domain expert of any of the individual skills. And so because of that, 
she does a really good job delegating because she doesn't have the desire or what she perceives to be the skill set to do this thing better than the person can. And so she never gets sucked in. And so she's able to take something from me, become the air filter, and then make sure that it gets executed. Um, and that's been the single most effective thing that I've done. And so that's like the whole first follower theory, integrator, and um, uh, what's the traction one? It's visionary. Yeah, visionary yeah. and the integrator. It's just really making sure that that number two in your company, like when you talk about thinkers, like when you're starting and you're going from like zero to a million or three million, you really have like a manager, right? When you go three to, to, to a million a month, you have like a director. But once you get like a million a month plus, it's really about somebody who can really lead operations and people. It's about leadership. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, that that role goes from manager to director to really like a COO leadership type, like a C-level executive at that point. And that person may be the person who could make all three of those changes, but it's very rare, right? Because there's three jumps that happen in every individual's life. You have individual contributor, you have manager, and you have leader. And it's very rare that you can have all three of those jumps. Most people can make one, maybe. And a lot of people can't even make one. Like, I'm sure you've seen star salespeople, great individual contributors, can't manage. Sure. And plenty of managers really detail-oriented. You can follow KPIs, but can't lead. Mm -hmm. And so those are the pivots that I think that you make at, at least from the one to three, three to 10. Um, sorry, million a year. Yeah. Uh, jumps that the, the person has to change. And typically, it doesn't mean that those individuals and the managers don't exist. It just means another layer has to get added, which is how corporate infrastructure becomes corporate infrastructure. Yeah. And then every entrepreneur is like, I don't want to build this. I did. I left corporate America. It's like, well, the reason corporate America looks like corporate America is because that's how you make a ton of money. Right. <laughs> like, right. Like, show me one corporate America, you know, company that's that size that has a flat infrastructure. It doesn't exist, right? And like, the entrepreneur owns that company didn't want that. It just became a, a requirement for achieving the end goal. It just is what it is. You get sued enough times and eventually you have policies that are a pain in the ass. You know what I mean? You have HR that has to deal with stuff because of the legal system. And that's just an eventuality of how all businesses that get big enough have to deal with. Yep. So uh, as we kind of uh, park this car and head in here, uh, you have uh, you've helped um, a lot of agencies recently. Yeah. Right. A lot of people, uh, even in my audience, either started a social media marketing agency or wanted right. to in the last several years. Uh, most of them fail, obviously. This is pretty <laughs> obvious. We know that. Um, why? Why do most of these new agency owners fail? Um, well, most of ours don't fail. Um, I'll tell you some not, fun not stats. Yours, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I can tell you fun stats if you want them. Um, Bring it, dude. So, well, one, okay, so I'll, I'll tell you, I took a, a small beta group of 10 guys, and uh, the average guy made $6,000 their first month, uh, made $19,000 their second month, made $34,000 their third month. That's the average. Top 20% was already 80000 by month three um, per month. Pretty cool, right? And so um, the, the big issues that most agency, SMMA, whatever, um, have is that they're just, A, they're just not good. So that's the, that's the big one. You're just actually not that good, which is why you don't deserve to make more money. And when you say not good, you mean at the actual fulfillment part? Yeah. Like they don't know. And they're probably not that good at marketing, which is why they can't get customers. So it's like, Correct. you know. It's, it's a really interesting thing. It's like, you're not good enough to do marketing to get customers for your business. How are you going to be good enough to do marketing for the business that you want to get? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So... Uh, the biggest one is that they don't take enough uh, accountability for their client results. So, you know, getting leads on a lead sheet is not, is not, it's not exciting, it's not valuable, right? And so they don't use their business acumen to try and improve the acquisition process for the small business, which is typically what most of them are marketing for, small business owners. And so they don't think, how can I get someone to make more money in their first 30 days? Because if they can make more money in the first 30 days, they can spend more money to acquire a customer, they can also spend more money on me. Right, and so most of them price themselves out of the market, and by that I mean they try to undercut. So they're at five hundred or thousand dollars a month, which is basically impossible to make a profit, um, especially in a service-based business. Mm -hmm. So they they run that price for themselves. They buy themselves a job, and they try and keep those prices by hiring people, and they make nothing. So that's like mistake number one with the pricing piece. Mistake number two is that again they don't take responsibility for the actual mousetrap that they're teaching these people to do. Which ultimately, like we don't work with. I think we people we have agency owners who come in. And what we have, on, what the, the product of our product, um, what we push out is a rainmaker. And so that's why we call it the community rainmakers. It's like everybody wants somebody who can just make it rain for them. Mm -hmm. And so that's a combination of multiple skills that you have to put together, right? Like just being able to run an ad is a skill. Learning how to write copy, headlines, images, right? And then learning how to build landing pages and funnel processes. And then there's also like what is the upsell process once the person comes into the facility, which is what most agencies have no idea because they actually have never been in an in-person business. Correct. Um, and a lot of them are like, well, and third, the third problem they have is that they can't pick niches. They try and niche hop. 
So we have a term in our community called a niche slap. I'm gonna fucking niche slap you if you if you can't pick one, right? Because you can have a hundred million dollar Genesis company, you can have a hundred million dollar roofing mm-hmm. agency, you can have a hundred million dollar gym agency. It mm-hmm. doesn't matter, but you have to pick one and you can't have all three. Because it's like, how are you gonna compete against me in the gym space when you also are dealing with physical therapists and chiropractors? When I'm going this deep on serving my clients better than you, how do you even think you deserve to get paid more? Mm-hmm. What do you think you deserve to get paid what we're getting paid? Mm-hmm. Of course you don't. And so it's making sure that they pick and stick with it. And so there's five stages in what we call <clears throat> in, in change that happen for, uh, for any kind of behavioral change. And so one is uninformed optimism, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which is where the grass is greener and you're like, that looks exciting. So someone jumps into a new niche and they're like, this is awesome, dentists make money, I'm gonna go after dentists. Then they go to stage two, which is informed pessimism. They now know that this is not nearly as cool as they thought it was. These guys have horrible front desks. They're not business acumen people. They're a pain in the ass to make decisions. They're overanalyzing. Cool. Stage three is depression <laughs> or determination, right? It's the value of despair. And so this is where like champions are made or people fall off, which is where most people fall off. And so there's two paths from here. Path number one, which is what 90% of people do, is they jump back to stage one in a different niche and they start over again and they say, you know what? It's going to be chiropractors. Chiropractors are the guys it's that need to go. It's totally it's different. Totally, yeah. totally different. And then they find out it's not the same, and then they go to value square. And they just continue this, this rabbit hole. And, and the false belief they have is, I'm going to do all three and see which one works. When in reality is, you need to pick one and make it work, because all three can work, but none of them can work together. Mm-hmm. And that's the fundamental uh, fallacy that all of them come in with, because it's not like betting on horses. It's like you have a horse. It's really like having a horse that can become... You know, uh, I was trying to think of a name of a champion horse, and I have no idea. So, a champion horse name. Sea biscuit. Sea biscuit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it's really a horse that has the genetic potential to become a sea biscuit, but you need to train it. But all three of them are. So if you have an untrained sea biscuit, none of the three are going to win. But if you jump on and train it, all three of them can become champion horses. But you can't train all three. And that's kind of how it is. And so you got to get them to pick, and then go super deep on it, so that they can reverse engineer their client businesses and ultimately become a rainmaker, show them how to sell, show them how to, uh, you know, price their products appropriately, show them how the upsells work, uh, and show them kind of like the public storage example I was giving you earlier, um, show them how to build a mousetrap. And so that's what Rainmakers is for us, is teaching all of the aggregate skills that together make you a far more valuable person, which is far more akin to a business consultant that is performance driven. And so the software that we built um, basically allows them to monetize off of performance rather than off of a fixed fee. And so with that, you know, in our business, we've been able to, you know, three or four X the average amount that a client pays us every month, but that's because we're aligned with their outcome. Right. And so by doing that, we can have variable pay based on the value that we provide. Yep. And so the problem is that if they switch to performance and they're lower performance, you get paid less. Mm-hmm. And so what's nice about the model is that it makes complete transparency in the marketplace. And ultimately, I think that that's where the marketplace will always goes to a more transparent, the more efficient, you know, way of paying. And so that's the platform that we, you know, created with Alan and we try all the training around it is to increase their skill set so that they can provide more value and then ultimately extract more value from their clients and also provide it. So it's just everybody wins. Yeah. I had a, I remember I had an agency owner who um, was doing the leads, lead sheet. That was it. And uh, I asked, I remember asking him, I was like, so what's the conversion rate? How do those leads back out? And he was yeah. like, I don't know. And I yeah. was like, why don't you know? He's because I don't want to ask. Why don't you want to ask? Because I don't think it's good. Like, it's like, I don't want to look under the rock. It's yeah. Like, yeah. Um, it's like the ostrich in the head in the sand kind of thing. Um, it's, it's wild, uh, but you have taken working with agency owners further than anyone that I know in doing this um, and pushing them that okay. far. And, uh, but there's a, there's a software component yeah. that's badass. Yeah. What is that? So we spent, um, <laughs> so we spent $4.2 million building a software over two years. So you spent 2.6 on ads. Yeah, it's been 4.2 on software. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we spent a bunch of money on the software. And it was because it was honestly just to solve this problem that was bugging the crap out of me, which is that our gyms were not working their leads. And so I'll, the, the 90 second story is essentially, if I, look at, if I look at a gym and I say, how can I improve how much money this gym makes? If I work with them on sales training and drilling them and coaching and all that stuff, I can get someone to double their close rate, right? And so that doubles the throughput of marketing campaign. That's a big deal, right? Doubling is a big thing. But if I take one step further, or one step earlier in the funnel, which is just how many people are they actually getting at bats with, the low performers are getting 5% of their leads in the door, and the high performers are getting 50% of their leads in the door. So I saw a 2x difference in throughput based on sales closing ability, and I saw a 10x difference in throughput based on their ability to work leads. And so I was like, this one I can, I can, I can provide, te- you know, I can put technology around and probably mm-hmm. beat, or at least standardize, whatever. I'd rather, again, I'd rather have everyone at 30%, yeah. 
then have some people at five and some people at 50. Yep. And so, and again, for my business, the people who are going to cancel are, are between five and 20 yeah. who are going to cancel with me. Yep. And so if I can just get everybody to 30, then I know like I get rid of my high risk candidates for me. And so we built the software and it was also aligned with, I know your business, which is it's all based on chat yeah. uh, because pickup rates are going down. Uh, people don't want like everyone gets their phone rings and is offended by the fact that someone would call. It's I'm like, are you. you okay? Is this an emergency? Then why are you calling me? <laughs> right. And so it's even more so and more exaggerated with a lead, right? And so way more people respond to via message. And so we, we created um, basically a bot that learns. And so through machine learning and humans, so it's both, uh, basically it continues to see how humans respond, our, our humans, and it logs those things. And it continues to improve on them uh, so that it can take on more and more and more of the conversations. And so like last month we had 80,000 leads that it worked um, and 85% of all the responses were were from the bot, not the humans. And so it is able to, you know, do a lot <laughs> yeah. of, of working leads, but there's still a human component. And that's how it seems so natural is because some of the messages that it's using are messages that have been queued before. Um, and, and what, what has it done for show rates? Yeah. So, um, we, we're right now on average, uh, 50% better than the average human, not the best human, but we're 50% better than the average human. Mm -hmm. And so, um, with that, that's, and we do it for less. <laughs> so if, if I'm the agency owner yeah. and I was sending the dentist 100 leads and 12 of them were showing up, now yeah. I work with Alan, how many show up? 18, 18 that, in that up. example, right? Um, and there's four kind of pillars of lead nurture. I can go into this as deep as you want to go. Uh, there's basically, there's, there's speed, which has two components. One is the speed between when they opt in, when they get their first message, and also speed of response in general, because there's back and forth that happen. You have these windows of opportunity where a lead is Is, is there interested. an activation related to this? Is it like the first reply? Is that something? Oh yeah, I mean, you need to be, you need to be super fast on terms of opt-in to first message. Just but, to get in to reply. Yeah. yeah, and then also, just if someone like, let's say Susie Q doesn't respond to three messages and then day two responds, you might have a five minute window where she's sitting at karate practice before she got there early, yep. where you might be able to have the opportunity to have that interaction. And if you're not there, you miss it. Right, so speed has those two components. Then you have personalization, which is do I talk to Susie different than I talk to Dan, right? You would probably as a person, so we wanna make sure that the machine can do that. The third is, um, is, is, is volume, volume of reach outs, which is how many reach outs do we have? Typically people call the lead once and then say, the leads, the leads are bad, right? The leads don't work. Yep. Um, and then the fourth is, and there's an optimal cadence that I could get into about like what times a day and all that stuff. But uh, the fourth is uh, one that we discovered, uh, which is availability. And it's actually the single biggest predictor on throughput out of any of the four variables by a lot. And so if you look at it on a chart, it's almost a one-to-one -one correlation between the total uh, availability score of a client uh, versus the amount of throughput they have compared to hypothetical max. And so that means that if you're a business and you're trying to grow your business and you're only available to take new clients between nine and 12 on Fridays, uh, you're probably not gonna grow because it's not convenient. Mm -hmm. And so we're in an on-demand economy and so people will just go somewhere else. They'll just go to the place that's most convenient. Um, Layla had three places the other day that she wanted to get a camera. It was like hair or something done. And the first two had way better reviews, but the third one was available that, that moment because she was free. Yep. And so she went with the one that had fewer reviews. So better than social proof uh, was convenience. convenience. Yep. And what, what's interesting to me is if you think about that with like Spotify and whatnot, I heard this from the CEO. is like, do you know the only thing that beats free is fast. So if you have uh, free food, but there's a line and food that you can pay for, it's the only thing that beats free Fast. is speed. Mm. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And so, anywho, uh, as an agency owner, what Alan allows you to do is you can now take over all the lead working, which means you have more control over the results of your client. And so with that, um, our agencies can build a mousetrap for their clients that's gonna help them be profitable in the acquisition. They can run the ads and they work the leads for them. So really, as far as a, a client is concerned, they're paying for ad spend and people just walk in their door. Mm -hmm. It's a pretty magical experience for them. And then they just get, they, they just uh, pay on performance, which is just that how many of these people showed. And so a big component of this was figuring out how we could get, how we could know who showed without the honor system. Right. And so that took about nine months and it continues to improve now. Um, so we have a machine learning team that looks at all the data um, and creates a confidence score of, based on 140 plus data points, uh, is it likely that this lead is going to show up based on all of these things? And so we bill over X percent confidence score. And so like last month we were 96.2% accurate based on what they marked versus what the machine said. And so 
that just continues to improve over time. Mm -hmm. uh, but what it does is it takes the honor system out of the equation and then it allows the agency to bill for what they provided and allows the business owner to not have to work their leads, not have to learn how to market and simply have people walk in the door to close. And so if I'm an agency owner and I don't suck, yeah. how do I get started with that one? Uh, first, you would wait three and a half weeks because we have a waiting list. Um, that's genuine. We really do. I just, I, it's, it's, you would prefer not yeah, to have a waiting yes, list. Yes, yeah, I prefer not to have a waiting list, but we have a waiting list right now. Um, as of whatever day it is today, August first week. Uh, if you're listening to this later than August first week, we hopefully don't have a waiting list. Um, but it's, it's actually without ad spend. It's literally just word of mouth right now. So um, you just go to useallen.com. That's it. And then you'll see a video that's like 10 minutes long. Watch it. And then if it sounds like it makes sense for you, apply. And then uh, we're just taking on application. And based on the conversation we had earlier, as long as you meet the qualifications of an avatar that we think is going to make sense that we can actually help, uh, then we will either reach out to you and be like, hey, you know, we can work with you or hey, we don't think you're at the level in your business that we'll you know, be able to uh, help you work the way we want to go. Because specifically, because we're a performance-based business too, I have no recurring fee. And so I'm, I'd rather have, personally, because now I can pick it, I'd rather have you know, 100 guys that I can take to 10 million a year than have 10,000 guys that are doing you know, 10 grand a month. Right. It's just, you know, and it's also way more fun for me because... It's way more exciting. You have more interesting conversations. Yes. It's yeah. not like, how do I place an ad and... You're solving you know, interesting yeah, problems. Right. It's yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. It's more like, how do I scale from 1,000 a day to 10,000 a day and ad spend? Like, that's more interesting to me. How do I find my first high-level directors? How do I find operations? How do I set cadence up in the business? How do I, how do I market and differentiate myself as an authority in space? Like, those are the fun conversations rather than like... How do I set up the pixel? Yes. <laughs> what is retargeting? No, I was you really know. asking, how do I do it? Yeah. 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 Um, okay, last question. Yeah. Um, and we're going to totally shift gears here. Uh, 10 years from now, mm -hmm. where are you? What are you doing? Um, so 10 years from now, I'll probably have exited both of these businesses, um, I think, either in majority or minority. So I might still be involved with them. Um, I might still be majority owner and just have you know sold a certain percentage of it. And that's mostly just risk risk mitigation if 95% of my net worth is in the equity in my company. It's like, you never know what's gonna happen. And so at a certain point, I'll, I'll probably take chips off the table. Um, that's kind of in terms of like big things that would probably happen. Um, and then I'll probably take those funds and start um, some sort of uh, incubator. So some sort of like Hormozy Capital or something like that, hmm. uh, which would be value add investing, where I would probably find companies that are doing one to three, maybe $10 million a year, buy a meaningful stake, um, and then apply all of the knowledge that we have to get them to 30 or 40 or 50 and then um, and then basically flip them because that's um, I, I recently acquired a, a piece of a company this year and it's honestly been great um, it's been a ton of fun um, because it's it's all the good and none of the bad because <laughs> yeah. they're still a CEO and they have their own team and it's really me being able to provide all my black book of all of my contacts and providing the strategic advice of like don't do that I already did that don't do that I already did that like stay focused, do more, don't do different. Yeah. <laughs> and just allow, yeah. just like moving them through those, the levels of, you know, 1 million, 3 million, 10 million, you know, 30 million, 50 million, whatever, all those levels quickly uh, without having to repeat the mistakes. And so if I can do that, I can show tremendous growth in their businesses, which will then make them more valuable. And so it's just a win-win. And so that's like where I think I can provide the most value in the marketplace, at least with my current level of understanding. So I think that's what would happen in 10 years okay. or maybe less. Where are you living? Um, we'll probably have multiple, I mean, we have, uh, we'll probably have multiple houses. So we'll probably have one, one lake house, lake slash mountain, lake, lake slash mountain house okay. um, in, uh, in Colorado or Utah because we like both of those. Uh, probably one beach location. It might not be a beach house, but just in the beach area. And then obviously we have our place in Texas that I, we both like a lot. That's kind of like HQ because it has, it's just like work home base. Yeah. Um, but I'll probably have uh, recreated that same home base in each of those areas, especially the mountain lake one. Uh, because a friend of mine, she is a tremendously successful business and she has three houses and she actually runs it the same way. So she has the same clothes, the same office setup, the same makeup same in all three of them. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. so she literally just grabs her bag. Like she doesn't pack anything and then she just hops in her net jet and then just flies to the other place two hours later and then she just is home. Like yeah. it's just, that's, I was like, I, I really like that. We should yeah. do that. And so yeah. that's what we're doing. That's what, that's what I did with California and Puerto Rico. Yeah. I have did like 20 of these shirts at both places. I'm Keep fucking yeah. going. Is that, I've been saying it wrong. I've <laughs> been saying it wrong this whole time. Fuck. Uh, <laughs> fuck. Yeah. yeah fuck. <laughs> it's like a Vietnamese name or something. Yeah. Awesome. Well, dude, thank you um, 
for sharing all the knowledge and the wisdom and stuff. More importantly, thank you for being such a hard worker and smart person to have smart shit to say and, and help so many people who are going to get enormous amount of value out of this. So always appreciate my time with you, and uh, we'll see you guys later. Rock and roll. Why would a millionaire show you how to have a full-time paycheck without having a job at all? It's because I just wrote my brand new book. It's called Screw Jobs. It's totally free. No strings attached. You hit the link below. You can download it for free right now in two seconds if you want. And here's the thing. See, I have never had a job in my entire life, yet I became a millionaire when I was 24 years old. In the last 12 months, I've helped over 150 people from over 60 countries begin to earn a full-time income as well without having a job. This is the digital age. We don't need jobs to live life on our terms and do the things that we want. So if you want to get my brand new book, it's completely free for the rest of today. Just hit the link below. You'll get it in literally less than a minute. And part of this book, by the way, was dedicated to my college professor who told me I would never amount to anything. So if there's anyone in your life doesn't believe in you, doubts you, says you can't do it, get this book and let's show them what you truly are capable of.